with <laughs> Behind the Buzz, a public fits bi-weekly podcast scrutinizing the details of the work that went into the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Preff. Hi! <laughs> and together we'll be continuing the conversation about the processes that went into landing these plays on stage. This is episode six. And today, we are continuing the conversation about our early 2019 production of Bess Wall's Small Mouth Sounds, a mostly silent play set in the woods of a small mountain town over the course of a silent retreat, hosted by, and this is in, in quotes here, the teacher, end quote, a life coach uh, who, who does the majority of the speaking uh, during the show. Today, we're talking about design. And we're joined by two APF absolute favorites. Arliss Estes has been working as a professional composer, musician, and sound designer for over 20 years with extensive credits in film, concerts, and even video games. Arliss was the sound designer for the show. And Josh Rabluski. He's APF's resident designer, even though he resides in Chicago. Uh, Josh received his BFA in theater from Milliken University and his MFA in lighting design from right here at UNLV. Uh, and until we can talk him into moving back here to Las Vegas, Josh works as an assistant professor in lighting at Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois. Arliss, let, let me start with you. Um, I've used the word silent like six times already in describing small mouth sounds, but a silent show really would have no use for a sound designer. Do you, do you remember how Anne-Marie approached you about the play? Yeah, I remember there was a lot of talk about the silence and the stillness. And uh, uh, But to a sound designer, that means how do you decorate the silence? Because there's almost, except in a laboratory, there's no such thing as actual silence, you know. So, uh, you know, there's always going to be, at the very least, there's going to be the sounds of human right. beings moving about, you know, or their breath or something like that. It's kind of a John Cage uh, philosophy towards it. Uh, but then, you know, then we, for that show, then we would obviously build into that concept. Uh, what I think is interesting is, yes, they're on a silent retreat, but I feel like the show had a ton of sound. Yeah, yeah kind of did. Uh, in it. <laughs> you know, uh um, around the silence, because I think, like you said, you said something interesting once about how you would try and go on hikes and you would try and find that sweet spot where there would be zero sound. Yeah, like uh, here at Red Rocks, I, uh, uh, an easy one is to go to the, if you go to the, the Red Rocks, the first pull off, mm -hmm. and then just hike around to the backside there where there's less cars going by. And if, if there's no wind and there's no bugs, then it just for a second, then the rocks and everything can uh, isolate everything. You can get actual silence for just a few seconds at a time. And like you, when it's actually silence, because we hardly ever actually experience that in real life, mm -hmm. like, like you can almost feel your tympanum kind of like unlock a little bit, you know, because they haven't experienced like even in, even in your house, there's some sort of noise going on, especially since we live in a town that's buzzing with sound. <laughs> Exactly. And it, what's the value in that? What's the value in, in finding absolute silence to a, to a sound designer? Well, for me, it's just because it's so rare. Like uh, when, when you spend all of, uh, that's a colloquialism, all of your time, uh, you know, 
critically listening to things for different projects or whatever you're doing or, or even, you know, I can't, I can't totally just chill out and listen, listen to music and let it wash over me. But like, I'm probably going to within 15 minutes start kind of picking apart that snare drum sound or something like that. You know, there's that part of the brain, uh, tends to be uh, hyperactive. So, uh, you kind of start to, it becomes obvious how little silence that you actually experience. So sometimes you say, I just want it to be quiet. And then you lay there try and take a nap and you're like, ah, it's quiet. And then after a few minutes, you're like, this isn't actually quiet. I can hear three airplanes and a whole highway full of traffic. Uh, I think my neighbor's moving a trash can, you know, two doors down, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. And it, it's the stuff we tune out. You know, there's so much that we tune out. And, uh, and I'm not saying that that's good or bad. Um, but, um, but it's, it's rare to experience actual pure silence, no input going into the, for your ears. Well, it sounds to me then like if you're about to approach a show that's based on a that's set in a silent retreat, and you know the, the vast majority of the show lacks, you know, character actor dialogue. That sounds like sound design would be even more important because the 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 sound in some ways. You used a great phrase earlier. You said decorate the silence, and I thought that was a great uh, a great phrase. That the sound design becomes that much more important. How do you approach something like that where the sound or lack of sound or the moment sound coming from lack of sound is, is so highlight highlighted. Well, I mean, there's, there's going to be first of all, there's going to be, uh, one of two stylistic choices that's get, that gets made. And, uh, this one, it was, it was made before I showed up. So that was helpful. But like, and if you're going to have a lot of, uh, like you said, it's, it's not silence, right? It's a lack of character dialogue. Right. Um, if you're going to, if you're going to have that, you either approach it by filling in that space or you approach it by, uh, We'll just stick with that term by decorating that silence. You know, you're either going to put a bed of sound, a bed of music, something that fills it up in between, or you're going to, it's basically, or the, the other choice, the one we went with is like, then you, the other choice is like, you're going to, it's going to use moments of sound. And then it's kind of a game of how much silence can you get away with before it feels like you're not doing your job. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, both as a sound designer and as a theater production, you know, like, there, there are some points it's like, oh, there hasn't been a sound effect in an hour. Like, that, feels kind of, that feels kind of lazy right now, you know, like, you, but you never know. It might not, you know, but that's the that's the tightrope in a situation for that show. That was kind of mm -hmm. an element something to, that, that required focus. Something that I really appreciate about working with you, you know, because uh, Public Fit works with a lot of different artists and different sound designers. Um, but you really like to sit in the rehearsal process for days, days on days. I, I can remember you sitting there for at least a week, you know, um, just watching, observing, listening, seeing what's happening in rehearsal before before uh, you made any decisions, which I actually uh, admire. Um, sometimes um, sound designers, as you know, they'll really look uh, very deeply at the script and they'll come up with a lot of ideas before they'll set foot into the rehearsal room. Is yeah, uh, when I definitely that's my preference. When I have the time, I like to to be around early on while the actors are figuring out mm -hmm. the things because you know it's it's the sound design and you're going to design sound for a play. Um, so you look at what what is already there and what's already going to be there are the sounds of the of the actors doing whatever. You know, uh, in a typical play, obviously most actors have dialogue. In this play, not everybody, not everybody had much dialogue. Um, so, you know, um, but still there, there were, um, there were aspects of, uh, 
how do these people sound? You know, the, the actual timbres of their voice has a little bit of an influence. You know, this, this is extremes. It's kind of ridiculous. But if everybody had super high-pitched voices like chipmunks, or if it was a children's play and it was all children and all their voices were way up high, then that might influence uh, the sound design to take, take up some, some lower area. You know, so you don't, you don't want to have a bunch of chirping bird sound effects in a play with a bunch of screaming children. You know, that, 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 might, not, that might not be the choice that you want to make. But, but the point is, is that the, the actual sound of the actors' voices and the pacing that they take through different scenes and different lines uh, influence. It's, it's a it's it's a color of, of the sound design, the, the total sound experience. Let's say it's a color that's mandatory. So you don't want to. You just want to be aware of it. You don't want to um, blindly design counter to it. It does. Is, is there a guideline that one follows if, if you're being told that this play is mostly silent, but we want to accentuate and decorate the silence? What's the first rule that you would use as approaching that as a designer? How would you first go about accentuating silence with sound? Okay, so um, I'm, I can kind of remember... Um, so you say first, which means that's a very early part of the process, right? That's yeah, a, or you're, you're sort of early ideas. the first thing you think about. <clears throat> yeah, well, um, uh, either through looking, either while I'm reading the script the first couple of times or while I'm watching some stuff happen, trying to keep kind of a general sense of having two buckets, so to speak. One bucket of a place where you're like, oh, I'm going to have to put some sound there. I don't know what, but something's going to have to happen there. And then another bucket, which is this, I need to not put anything anywhere in this scene if I can get away with it. You know, like kind of big blocks uh, as much as you can, little moments, because, you, you know, I can't remember, oh, the bear, that's one, the bear. You read the, you read the bear and you go like, okay, I mean, we'll talk about it, but there's probably going to need to be a bear sound. some kind of sound. Bear sound or leaves at the, leaves at the very least, uh-huh. you know, something, something. There'll probably need to be something there, so that's kind of a checkbox well, on I one feel, side. Uh, you the you bear like, scene actually was... Uh, cumulative right because those bear sounds uh started early with like the leaves in motion in the text right to kind of uh establish like a breadcrumb that there's something out there we that we don't quite know what it is so we we have we have four characters out in the middle of nowhere trying to experience and trying to obey the rules and and be silent Mm -hmm. and a series of sounds begins to accumulate to where we hear first we hear birds and then there are insects because he's being bitten by by bugs and then we hear leaves crackling and it builds up to what they think is a bear coming through the the woods later on it actually is a, a bear but in this first scene it, it it's not a bear so you had to do some building uh, of sound to create that effect yeah yeah, absolutely. And uh, there'd be two aspects there. One, since the aesthetic of the play is uh, 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 a noticeable lack of sound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then, therefore, whatever your peak bear sound is in this <laughs> situation, <clears throat> it, it has to be respectful of that overall aesthetic. You can't do, like, all of a sudden a 5.1 in-your-face you can hear the hair around his mouth bear snarl. You know what I mean? Like, like cinematic. You can't go all the way there because that, that's like what? Because that's because that's a sound that is intending to put an image in your head. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. like it's a it's a, such a concrete 
such a uh, forward presentation. I'm sorry. Well, it's not a video podcast, so that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> just for, for those of you at home, he's gesticulating wildly into the camera. And uh, although we can describe it, it's really meant to be seen. We'll, we'll post the video later. Yeah, yeah excellent. This will be my new headshot. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, no, so, so, so like you, you mess around, you find what maximum bear you can get away with. And in this case, I can't remember. It wasn't a big, scary growl. I don't think it was kind of a moan growl, ah, some sort of <laughs> like, I, I can't remember. But, but then, then all your steps below that, well, all the steps leading up to that have to be below that, obviously. So you can set your maximum and then that determines your dynamic. Mm-hmm. And in this play, uh, the, the keynote of sounds like that and all those little moments that build is you kind of don't, you want to meet the actors on stage at the 50% mark. It's not like uh, uh, some other play where you're going to have a bear or a train go by and it's going to be super concrete and you're going to meet the actors at the 70% mark and all they have to do is go like, oh, a train, you know, we should get on this train. You know, like, I mean, because those, those, the scenes where it wasn't the bear, where it was just leaves and stuff, the only reason that we knew that there was anything to be feared is because of what Marcus was doing. You know, like, his he he took he he probably did more than fifty percent in those scenes. You know what I mean of of presenting bear reacting so to reacting to a sound in a way that <clears throat> suggested danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Otherwise, it's just it's just a snapping sound and a couple of crushing leaves, and they, it's you, you might ignore that. He, he could have easily if it wasn't in the script, he could have ignored it, and that could have been a random pine cone falling off of a tree twenty feet away, and no big deal. You know, mm-hmm. but you know, like the sound in that play can't can't tell the whole story of the bear because that's not the aesthetic of the entire play the entire play is based on how do these actors get through an hour and a half without saying anything you know right Kind of a stunt, so well, to speak. This is a, a great opportunity for me to segue. I want to bring Josh in here. Josh, we've, we've talked a little bit about sound accentuating silence, but th- another thing that these characters are in this setting is isolated, right? They're on a on a um, some sort of campground in the middle of the woods somewhere. And our list has talked a little bit about creating or accentuating silence with sound. Is there a way to accentuate isolation with lighting was that an approach you took in this show do you recall um you know there was so many things about the show that were unique and challenging i think for all of us as an artistic team um you know it's so if you ask any designer what their normal process is for a show it's you know reading the script coming up with ideas and all that stuff, <laughs> all that stuff. most of <laughs> this was stage direction right <laughs> um, all that stuff all that stuff um and right so we take so much from from the text that's where we get a lot of our ideas and emotions and feelings and what to accentuate and everything like that. And that just didn't exist so much in this play. And so like, unfortunately, that is unfortunate. We have the exact anymore, same feelings, remarkably uh, unfortunate, but, but you know what? <laughs> changeable, but actually like, flexible. Yeah. Okay. Just saying changeable. Yes. Um, like Arles was saying, uh, uh, we, um, like he was in the room a lot and I would have loved to have been in the room because specifically for this show, right. A lot of what we do is based on the production. We're all a a team together. And so, um, you know, it's like, how do we come up with all of that? 
Also, your space is very unique, right? As it's not a traditional theater space. So we have a lot of flexibility um, <laughs> to some extent, right? There are limitations, uh, but a lot of flexibility as to where we can place lights and what kind of effects we can get. Um, we went in a new direction with Alley, uh, an Alley setup seating on two sides. Uh, right, that we hadn't really done, at least I haven't done with you guys. Um, I think that was the first time. Was that the first time we did tennis court setup? I thought we did it with Tinker, but... Oh, yeah, I guess Tinker kind oh, yeah, of had that. Yeah, suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you did Tinker, Josh. I did. That was forever ago, though. <laughs> it was. Yeah. We'll talk about um, that, too, someday, I think, on this podcast. Um, but, yeah, we're able to really kind of isolate uh, and enhance that idea that we're in the middle of nowhere. Um, it does get a little difficult. Uh, you know, the characters are all in different tents, uh, but we all need to see what they're all doing because it moves from one to another. Um, and so they're all fairly close. So how do we achieve that um, closeness uh, and isolation? How do we achieve that isolation with everyone being so close? And it's, uh, you know, figuring out the angles of the lights, where you can put things to get the best coverage, um, and really trying to enhance, uh, enhance the feeling and the mood, right? I think that's what lighting design does. Uh, that's its number one job is to, um, kind of portray the intangible of a production. So sometimes, you know, because we've worked together for a really long time, you know, I, we've done a lot of shows together. Um, and sometimes you really want to notice the lights, right? Like, oh, this is an effect. <laughs> like when we did Miss Julie together. Or Glass Menagerie for EPF or has some yeah, remarkable glass. lighting effects. That, that Yes, yes. You Sometimes you really would like want to point a finger to the lights. And then sometimes you want the lights to be very naturalistic where you don't notice the lights. Uh, and, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here because you're you're the, the lighting guy and I'm the director. But what I found to be a bit of a challenge is what you were mentioning is those three cabins. Remember that? And in that in those stage directions, it's kind of it was like a ballet of those six characters. The six characters come in and they've been assigned um, uh, uh, a cabin partner. And they have to set up their space. And during the ritual of setting up their space, you get to peek in uh, like a fishbowl and see the, um, the the character dynamic, where there's friction, where they might get along, where there might be misunderstandings. And so um, I always call <laughs> uh, the cabin sequence because there's so much happening that you have to come back to the show like three or four times to kind of choose your own adventure because there was so much happening. But what I feel like, and, and I think it took us a while um, to actually figure out the lighting of this, but in staging it, it, it took a long time for the actors and myself through collaboration to set up like the ballet of it. Like the focus goes from Judy and Joan to Rodney and Ned to Jan and Alicia, you know, it was kind of this, this kind of, um, tennis ball uh, match happening between these three players. And so at first it seemed almost counterintuitive 
in terms of lights to bring the lights up and to bring the lights down and then bring the lights up. It, it seemed like almost like as if we were, and I'm putting words in your mouth, kind of twisting our mustache with the lights, <laughs> right? Like, look over here, look over there. Like, I think we kind of fought that. Do you remember that? I do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of this show that personally as an artist, I hated my design for a while uh, and it took me a while to get to a place where I uh, did enjoy it. And it all came together in the end, which right, yeah. productions do. And I think that's kind of my standard MO for any production I do is I tend to hate it. And then eventually it becomes good. And then I hate it again. You know, hate, hate, then, hate, hate, love. Yep. And then on opening night, I hate it again. So, um, but <laughs> No, I do remember, remember that a lot because one of the jobs of lighting is to create emphasis and tell people where to look and when to look there. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's one of the main, the main tasks of lighting. Uh, and so it's fighting that urge, right. To highlight every specific thing, but you had stuff going on in all these cabins at the same time. There may have been one that maybe pulled a little bit more focus than another at any given point. And I think eventually we settled with like a little bit of a, a hint, like almost a subconscious uh, increase in the lighting on the areas that might have been a little bit more um, needed, a little bit more emphasis at the moment. But it was very, uh, very subtle because mm -hmm. we you don't want to take the audience out of those moments either. Right. You. Uh, you want to enhance, right? Uh, decorate the space. Uh, that is a good term. <laughs> That's um, a great term. I'm going to steal that one for sure. Yeah, it makes us sound smart. Yep. Yeah, but yeah. If, it's the same thing with any other type of production. If you have too much going on, it just becomes distracting. And the audience doesn't know where to look. They don't know how to feel. They don't know what's going on, right? And so you have to kind of be able to understand that and feel that. Um, and I think we were both feeling that and trying to figure out where the point was uh, that it needed to be. So it's fighting that instinct of like, this is what lighting does, but also trying to make it fit within this world. And I think, you know, we were going for kind of a simplistic world. The set design wasn't overly complex and, uh, you know, costumes weren't overly complex and everything was kind of a little bit simpler life. Um, and so I think trying to have the lights fit into that moment uh, and that kind of concept um, really benefited the show. Yeah, you know, we, we do a lot of prep, a lot of production prep for uh, these shows. We meet with our design team, you know, at least eight weeks out before our, our very first rehearsal and discussing design concepts and, and approaches and uh, uh, the practicality of putting it all together. And lights uh, sometimes come late to that party because you guys are often dependent upon what the set finally becomes right but josh you're i mean you're at all of those meetings your your input is um, uh, incredibly valuable arliss you're involved in all of that stuff too is there a is there a vocabulary a specific vocabulary in the way you guys choose to discuss design because trying to talk to somebody about what the sound is or what the light looks like. I mean, you can really fall into some rabbit holes. I would think about how you try to describe a mood or a tone or a sound or a thing. Are some directors better at that than others? Are some production teams more attuned to, to talking about design concepts than others? Can you guys talk about that a little bit? Arliss, you want to jump in? Uh, for, for me, it, 
collaborating with other people on, on artistic things, it, everybody is just interpreting each other's poetry. Um, that's, as, that's as close as you can get to it because you're, you're not discussing anything concrete. Um, I mean, you can discuss technical things. There are concrete elements, but when you're really talking about the, the work, um, it's, it's entirely subjective. Perhaps there is another language besides English that I do not know that is more adept at expressing these things. But with English, like you quickly run out of road. So you're talking instead of, you know, you goes like, yeah, it's like it's love, but it's also <laughs> like nighttime. You know, like, there's like, <clears throat> you know, like, but, you know, it's, it's, it's things like that. And like you, you, every, every, every project, every production, regardless of what it is, and we collaborate with people that you have to define a language okay. for that group. You know, and, and often it's, it's common language. It's not always a challenge, you know. And, yes, yeah, some people are better at it than others. Um, uh, uh, I noticed a long time ago, this is a, a side note, but like, uh, there's, there's this difference between, uh, theater directors and film directors and choreographers. Like there's, those are all three entirely different languages. You describe the same sound and the same music. You have to use entirely different terms. And, uh, and like as a, as a music head person, I have to be careful about how I use terms like higher, you know, or bigger. You know, and like those, those words, you think that they mean something specific and they don't like, like you say, I say higher and I'm talking about making notes, of, <laughs> but somebody else hears it and they're like higher, like yeah, heightened emotion. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, like, like, so fascinating. So yeah, there's just a lot of interpretation and you, every time somebody, every time somebody gives me a lot of times, somebody will give me a note and, uh, I will write it down and, uh, I wrote it down clearly so that later on I can sit there and stare at it and like think about what they actually meant. It's not like I didn't understand at all what they were trying to say, but it's like, okay, okay. But like, you know, like when you're doing the third or fourth edit of a, some sort of cue and like you're already in the ballpark and now you're getting to the subtleties of it. It's like, okay, did they want it to be, did they want me to add something to this or did they just want me to turn it up a little bit? You know, like you got to interpret those type of things because there's a correct answer in there, but it, we don't have the language to discuss it, so so we all kind and, of and, interpret each other's and, poetry. And jo I, I love right. that term, interpreting each other's poetry. Josh, you've been with APF for the very beginning. You you did Foxfinder, our first show. And you actually, you and Anne-Marie went to graduate school mm -hmm. together. That may be where you guys developed a vocabulary. Do you find it easy to, to uh, the back and forth with, with Anne-Marie in, in discussing her concept? And oh, God. Expressing <laughs> well, no, really. You, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Anne-Marie, would you, would, it's okay, Josh. Anne-Marie, would you please leave she's the room wonderful. for a little while? Okay, she's gone now. She's left the room you can talk freely no uh go ahead yeah, I think, no i think Emery and i work really well together honestly um and what i was going to say to your original question is it's truly dependent on what the team makeup is and specifically i think the director um i think the director is the biggest uh change in terms of the vocabulary that you use um and yeah it just really depends on that some directors have a certain way of thinking or a certain word that they use to describe something, you know, uh, I know one director once, uh, used the term, uh, they wanted lights yellower 
but what they really meant was <laughs> dimmer because of the amber drift that happens in lights and like so you keep changing color to be more yellow and <laughs> and then it just gets worse and worse right is that really so, a thing is there is are there is there a, a graduation of yellow <laughs> we can we can well, be yellower as you turn a light down uh, and a light dims it becomes more amber mm-hmm. right it becomes more warm and so that's mm-hmm. what they were referencing um but it's it's figuring that out, right? So it becomes a little, I don't want to say difficult, but it's a new experience when you're working with a new director or a new team, right? And figuring out what those different languages are. But I think Anne-Marie and I have worked together enough that uh, we're pretty much on the same page right from the beginning. What I love about uh, working with you is, um, and it wasn't so much with this show, it was more uh like when there's a problem, like a massive problem, right? I'll be like, this is not quite it, Josh. But I trust you so much that I'll be like, okay, Josh, this is kind of what I want. I know you can fix it. And I'm what I'm thinking of is in terms of glass menagerie, uh, um, we had some uh, lighting effects that we wanted to set up and I was, and your genius in lighting really showed up in that show. So Coming back to this show is uh, there's I have so much trust in your ability. Uh, I, I you're very quiet. You're kind of like a silent killer <laughs> when, it, when it comes to lighting. And, and so I just have so much appreciation um, for that relationship with you. I don't feel like I have to. I feel like I can step out of the way and, and, and let you let you work it out if we have if we come to a crossroads with a particular situation. Yeah. And I think that's uh, something that's super important, you know, Mm -hmm. for all directors to have that trust with your creative team, because, right, ultimately you've hired us to do a job and you've hired us because of our expertise. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while I'm not saying I want to work in a bubble because I don't right? like a lot of what I do specifically and a lot of what we do as theater people uh, is work off of each other. We collaborate to create uh, a truly excellent production. Mm -hmm. Um, But to some extent, right, I don't necessarily need the director standing over me at the board saying, can you turn this light on? Can you turn that light on? Right. There should be some kind of give and take. And I think we have uh, a really good relationship in that sense. Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to talk about a couple specific moments, but if you want to. Please. Um, you know what I uh, remember about the show specifically is that when we were in the main hall, like where the teacher spoke to to the mm. six members of the, uh, that space was like very realistic. You would almost say that, that the lighting in that room, it wasn't fluorescent lighting because that wasn't the look of the show, but it's like a very neutral, right? There wasn't yeah. a lot of shifts in lighting. But then I think of other moments in the show, like when Alicia and Rodney get together and they have like that hot, sexy scene. And then you had, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? And then yeah. you had all this like red or, you know, there were a lot of uh, very nuanced moments in the show that I really appreciated. Uh, uh, and those moments happened outside of like that main, main room. But what I thought was also very unique was the lighting that you used with those trees that were uh, like the panels that um, Eric had set up. Do you remember that? I do. 
I, that was not um, something I had imagined when we started the the show that just, it, it would be so colorful. Just let me describe the set really quickly, since we don't have the the set designer uh-huh. here. On one end of this tennis court, mm-hmm. we had a slatted wall with six chairs, and the actors sort of sat on a platform in front of this slatted wall, uh, as if they were in a classroom. And at the far end, the the complete opposite end of that tennis court, there was another slatted wall. But this one uh, was in two sections, and in the middle were uh, three. Um, sort of environmental panels, panels that trees, lit up yeah. with trees and one had leaves and one, and they were in, in sort of varying colors uh, and those were illuminated. But the slatted walls on either side also were illuminated from the top and the bottom. And Josh, you were able to put some some specials on there uh, that really created, I think, the, the effect that Anne-Marie is talking about. So that was the set uh, in, in, a, in a nutshell. Do you remember the, the effect that she's talking about? Yeah, I mean, um, what I something that I really enjoy about being a lighting designer is um, really not reacting, but going off of other people's ideas. Right. Um, Scenic design and costume design. We all have these conversations, like you said, like eight weeks out, we talk about concept and stuff. But what I do personally is all theoretical until maybe a week before the show when I get in the space and turn on lights. Um, and so a lot of time in that process, right, I'm responding to what the scenic designer is pulling in, what the costume designer is pulling in, what the uh, sound designer is pulling in. Uh, and I responded a lot to what Eric did with the set. Um, and so I ended up using a lot of his set to create texture uh, in the space, you know, shooting light through those uh, slotted walls to uh, get these nice shadows um, using the panels because uh, I don't think they were originally going to light up, but we talked about that, right? Putting lights in there uh, and then they were able to glow and change. So we would have, you know, early morning looks or late evening looks. We were able to change that stuff to um, really affect the mood and the feeling of what's going on around them. Uh, and I thought that that was really effective in a number of ways. One is, obviously uh, to change the look, but I think it goes along with that simplistic idea as well of, uh, and I guess maybe not simplistic, but minimal, um, is the better term, uh, and clean and modern, I think is what the set was going for. Uh, and we often see those kind of lights in more modern settings, especially nowadays, like led tape, that people put around their house or under their cabinets or something like that. And I think it really um, lent itself to that as well. So it was kind of an interesting mix of, you know, a modern modern uh, retreat building. And I know that has a particular term that I can't think of, but, um, or and like a forest that's all random and chaos and organic and, you know, messy, so. You know, you said something, Josh, that I'd like to jump off on a little bit. Um, you talked about collaboration, and I can see very easily how lights and set collaborate. The light bounces off the set. I can see very easily how lights and costumes sort of go hand in hand. The light bounces off the costumes and sometimes changes a yellow dress to green or, or a red dress to black, depending upon how the, you know, the lights are shined upon them. How do, how do lights and sound collaborate? How do you guys we don't. Uh, we hate go each hand other. in hand? What? <laughs> Well, this is news to Arliss. He's horrified. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I actually think that we uh, 
we are some of the closest design elements because we're not tangible, right? You can't grab sound, you can't grab lights, you can't adjust it with your hands. Uh, they are. You can't throw paint on it. They're magic, right? Um, so I think uh, we work closer than you would imagine. Um, oftentimes, it's the sound designer I go to. Uh, and I think we did this too in, in uh, Small Mouth Sounds of, I really think I want to put a light cue here that does this thing. But without sound backing it up, it's going to look really awkward, right? And so is there something that you can do to enhance this moment as well? And it makes everything come together. Uh, and then I think even in the intro, right, you had all the sounds with the rain and stuff, and we worked through a specific timing about, you know, at this moment, the rain happens. And so we do this with the lighting and then this, the sun comes out at this point. So we'll do this with the lighting. And I think, um, yeah, because we're both, kind of in that intangible world, I think we work closer together than kind of other, uh, other design elements. So does that make sense? Arliss, you guys are brothers in intangibility. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, in uh, even, uh, even on different levels than that, cause lots of times I'll find that like, not always, but lots of times the lighting designer is near me while he, they're doing their work. You know, so there's a lot of banter, like just little, little <laughs> quiet, like, like even if it's just kind of like a, it's cold in here. It's like, yeah, I don't know what they're doing. You know, like, like so there's, there's, a rapport, there's, there's, there's rapport building, intangible collaboration, let's call it. <laughs> and, uh, and then there'll always be a time. And then other than that, like, you know, if, if, if there's lots of times, I'm, I'm generalizing, but like lots of times if there's comments on each other's work, it's just kind of like, wow, man, those LEDs are awesome. I didn't know that was going to happen. It's like, you know, and, and then it's always, whichever, whoever says something like that, the other person's always like, yeah, they're not working right. But, <laughs> you know, and then there'll be a time like... Take the compliment, Josh. You know, yeah, you know, but like it's, it works both ways. It works both yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I didn't know you had a speaker over there. Yeah, it's hooked up backwards. I got to... You know. <laughs> but, uh, but there'll become a time, let's let's just say it's about the three-quarter mark before opening when that then like someone will approach the other and be like so about that street lamp it's like ah yes I, I was thinking this you know like 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 you kind of there 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 builds this sense kind of uh, after a little while after the designs are taking shape there, there builds this kind of common sense of like oh, okay well obviously light's gonna have to do something there and it's like then obviously sound is gonna have to do something there and you know that uh that's always fun do you remember Arliss? We had a, a really difficult moment. There was a transition where they were moving around these their mats that they slept on. It was an odd transition. We we went from the teacher uh, talking to the six of them while they were sitting on the ground to uh, Joan coming into Judy's room and actually talking. And you put in those bird sounds. Do you Birds, remember that? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I hated that transition not because of you. I loved what you did to it. I didn't like what I had staged. <laughs> I thought I did a crappy job staging, getting from getting those actors out of uh, that space and moving them into another space. And what you did was you, you made me look like I knew what I was doing. I can remember going over the birds uh, a few times, <laughs> like, you know, uh, and, and that's a that's an intricate thing because it's just bird sounds. You're like, okay, here's some birds, but then like, okay, most of these birds are uh -huh. fine. But then, then there, maybe this was the case in that sound. There'd be like one bird in there who was causing an inappropriate type of stress or something like that. You know, 
You know, it's like that's mm-hmm. we don't want to feel any of that. It's like, OK, because they're different birds, different birds. Well, it was it was a really <laughs> stressful moment in the show. And so you had these like, wah, 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 which I felt really punctuated uh, the scene. And then it also fed into the next scene. So I thought that was very intuitive on your part. How, how often does that happen? Arlo? So the, a director comes in and says, I screwed up here. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I need your help. Well, I didn't say it like that. I know you did it, but I just met a <laughs> But I didn't like yeah. it. I was like, in, <laughs> in the week before a show opens, it happens a lot. <laughs> but that, it must, the internet has the internet must have made that a little bit easier because I think is it is it fair to say that if you know I come at you and say I need that bear sound but not that bear sound I need a different bear sound and I need a bear that's bear, that bear sound six feet tall I need a nine foot bear sound do you spend a lot of time searching for stuff on the internet or do you create your own sounds or a mixture of both I when it, if it's sound effects I have about a terabyte of sound effects. Um, Holy cow. So, like, if it's not in there, I can take one of those and alter it or take five of those and mutate them together into something. Wow. You know, or or make my own. I mean, making your own is the most fun thing to do. But, like, you know, if you don't have access to a bear, for instance. Sure. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> we don't lend ours out anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, Josh, do you remember the moment uh, in the show where we turned the the lights up on the audience? I do. That's not something that happens all the time in the theater. And I don't necessarily know if it happens in every production of Small Mouth Sounds. It's the moment where uh, the teacher talks about everyone being one, right? We're all in this together. You are not alone, right? We're all in this, this soup of life where we're all suffering. We're suffering and we're, we're super challenged. And, uh, and then, um, as the, that monologue progresses, we turned the lights up onto the audience and it made it very, I don't know if this is the right word, Joe, but made it very meta. Yeah, there was a meta aspect to it. And it was sort of forcing the audience to not only self-examine, but to look across the space and see their counterparts on the other side. The audience was literally looking at themselves. And uh, did, did, how do you feel about an effect like that, Josh? That seems like maybe counterintuitive to doing stuff on the stage and pulling stuff back into the house again. Well, it really depends, right? It depends on what we're trying to do. And in that moment, we were trying to comment on the fact that we're all here in this room, right? Uh, a lot of times we dim the house lights, we turn them off because we're focusing on something else, right? We're not... Uh, focusing on ourselves. And I think that's what you try to do with the buzz is bring it back to discussion about real life and how this, you know, how this uh, play matters in the overall world um, in one way or another. And so we were just doing that kind of mid show. Um, it, uh, I thought it was extremely effective, especially because the way it was set up, if it was proscenium, um, I don't know how well it would, have translated, right? Because we're all sitting side by side as opposed to facing each other. Um, well, I saw I, I saw a production of 1984 where they did just that at the sort of the final monologue. The, the house lights were brought up and the, and the audience was sort of forced to recognize that they were, you know, part of the whole <clears throat> fascist process by standing there watching mm-hmm. um, it was the, the most recent 1984 uh, headlong, the headlong production. And uh, and you're right. The proscenium d- didn't play as well because all we're doing is sort of still looking at the at the stage. We're looking at the back of the head 
of the audience. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're looking at the back of the head of the audience member in front of us. We're not looking right into his eyes as we were in this yeah. case. Yeah. And, you know, I've done similar things before, uh, not necessarily for this effect, but basically bringing lights out into the audience, um, making the audience feel like they're part of what's going on on stage. Right. So, for example, if we're doing like a coffee shop, like uh, some show that's a coffee shop and they have like hanging Edison bulbs, which kind of was similar to what we had. But uh, bringing those out into the audience makes them feel more connected. It kind of eliminates that fourth wall aspect a little bit um, and gets them to invest a little bit more. And I think uh, we were able to achieve that pretty well. Uh, you know, there's <laughs> house lights are always something that is a challenge for every lighting designer that doesn't have built in house lights. Um, Cause it's trying to figure out how to safely light it, right? You want people to be able to get to their seats or exit or whatever in a safe manner, but you also kind of want it to be part of the show and you want it to be uh, of the world. And I think, uh, you know, trying to find different sources and stuff like that is always a challenge, but I think we effectively did that. And well, especially, especially in our space where you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but especially in our space where you really literally have to go in and build the infrastructure with each show. You, you, everything is torn out. When we go back in, you're reinstalling a lighting board. You're reinstalling all those dimmer packs. You're reinstalling not just the lighting instruments, but their uh, connections to their power sources and, and what have you. Is that, I won't say freeing, but is there a, some sort of uh, liberty and, and freedom in being forced to do that because you have more flexibility? Or is it a, just a huge pain in the ass? It's both at the same time, uh, honestly. Uh you know, the more people you have to help you, the better it's going to, the less pain in the ass it's going to be, but it is to some extent freeing. Yeah, we're a real pain in the ass. Uh, it is to some extent freeing because you're able to just think about what the show needs, right? Uh if you're like, oh, this moment, I really I think a backlight on this person would be super effective, right? I can put a backlight for that person uh, instead of being in a theater where there might be masking or battens or flying scenery or whatever, right, that I don't have that access to. Um, so it does give me incredible flexibility. It is a pain in the ass to move the ladder all over the place, but I do it because I love you guys and I love the shows that we do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Arla, same question to you, although your your uh, infrastructure is probably a little, maybe this is not the right word, a little less complicated. We're, we're moving speakers. We're sort of uh, tuning where the speakers go. But you have, you, does it provide some freedom for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you know, you, 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 uh, there's, there's different fun you can have based on your speaker placement. You know, and, uh, and like we've discussed uh, in the case of y'all space, it's an irregular space. It's an unusual space. So there's um, there's certain challenges that you need to be aware of, but there's also certain little uh, extra games you can play. Like uh, the last the last show, uh, being able to put a speaker kind of down, the, kind of having to, but also getting to put a speaker down down a hallway. You know, a little bit down that mm -hmm. passage behind the seats. Um, it just it. it it's like the audience may or may not enjoy it as much as I do, but you, you're going to get a different sound than just direct speaker sound. 
you know, by just being able to put speakers in, in fun places. And I was going to say um, that, you know, theaters are built for kind of the general. Uh, they're built for any kind of show to come into it. So, right, there are kind of standard positions for speakers, standard positions for lighting that exist within a theater. When you're in a space like yours, right, it's a blank canvas. So you can really specify speaker placement, lighting placement for this production instead of trying to fit the production in a general area, if that makes sense. Does that give you some freedom too, Emery, to, to, to sort of um, mandate and suggest is probably a better word, um, effects and have some more freedom in, in offering up, um, you know, freedom for the, the guys to design to their heart's content? Yeah, it always... Where it starts with me is the foot pattern. Like, what is the pattern of movement that the actors take? Are we going to be in an alley seating? Are we going to be in thrust? Are we going to be in proscenium? Are we going to be, you know, like kind of cockeyed like we were in, in Glass Menagerie where it wasn't real? it was kind of uh, around to the side, but off center. Yeah, I, I call it a modified, modified <laughs> thrust. <laughs> it was something. Um and, and I think what you and I both try and do is we want every time the audience comes into our space, we want them to feel like it's a completely different world. So no two shows look the same so that they're always surprised by the environment. So once the design team decides what that foot pattern is and that audience setup, then, you know, it's a layering pattern. You know, it starts with Eric and, and, and Maria, and then it builds with uh, sound and lights. And I think that's really exciting just to completely reinvent the space. And I have fond memories of every show and how we've created these new worlds. And that's something I'm really proud of in terms of APF. That's fine. Jump in and say Eric uh, as the set designer and Maria as the costume designer in terms of uh, tangible design, as as Arliss would point out and and uh, Josh would point out. Um, you know, I completely agree. I think that's it's that sort of flexibility is important and building a world. Uh, is one of the first things we really look at. We really mm -hmm. decide what do we need. What are the building blocks? The basic blocks that we need to put down to to. Uh, to build this world. I've heard it. Is it true? The, the adage that if, and, and for you too, Josh, that if you notice the sound, if you notice the, the lights, uh, that that's an unsuccessful design that in order for a sound design to be successful, a light design to be successful, you don't want the audience to notice the, these effects. Is that, is that true? Or is that just pretty much bullshit? Well, it's, it's exactly like you said, it's, a, it's an adage. Uh, the reality of it factors down to show by show and cue by cue. Uh, what, what I think that that references more than anything is does anything that you do as a designer distract from the story? Like if there's a sound happening while there's important dialogue and it keeps pulling your ear because there's a, I don't know, there's a loud sound happening or it's masking the dialogue or it's just drawing your attention when, when what's appropriate is for all of your attention to be focused on the words. Um, that's a sound design that you would say you noticed it in an unsuccessful way. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why are the why are the crickets playing at 300 decibels during the love yeah, scene? Or why are those crickets playing at all? Because I can't listen to anything other than those crickets because of the weird little rhythm that they're making. You know, like yeah, you know, just anything that might draw your attention. You know, and but obviously there's other times when sound, when design of any sort, sound design specifically, uh, needs to go ahead and just take the driver's seat for a second. You know, so in that case, you want to notice it. You know, and then, and if it's a 
if it's a big sound design show, if it's a show that's going to have a ton, a ton of sound design, and sound design is going to be kind of a character, so to speak, then in, in that case, you want to make sure that when the audience leaves, that one of the things that they talk about was that was the design. Is that true for you too, Josh? Is there, are there times when you want the lights to be all up in your face and there are times when they want them to sort of sit in the background unnoticed? Well, if no one notices the lights, then my ego doesn't get fed, so... <laughs> if no one, also, if no one notices the lights, you're probably in the dark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, Arliss uh, said it pretty pretty well, is that it really depends, and uh, it's about if you're supposed to be noticing them or not. Uh, you know, if I'm doing American Idiot and you don't notice the lights, uh, you right. know, I think there's something wrong with that. But also, if I'm doing small mouth sounds and I have rock and roll lights going all over the place, you know, that's also... <laughs> Uh, not quite right. So there's a there's a fine line, and you know it's production by production, show by show, uh, and even cue by cue. Like you were saying uh, in Small Mouse Sounds, the uh, the classroom right was kind of neutral, and then when we were outside, it became more colorful, more uh, emotion based lighting, which is mm -hmm. probably more noticeable, right? And so. Mm -hmm. um, and there are varying levels of that, right? Does it? Do you want to kind of subconsciously affect people's feelings about this character, or do you want to hit them over the head with it? And you know, both of those are can be correct answers, uh, even within the same production, depending on which direction you take with the production. So I love it when like the lights or the sound are, you know, in a more neutral place, and then suddenly, in a, a very thoughtful way the direction takes it and kind of points a finger to the lights or to the sound. And it also punctuates the action on stage, like all the story, the lights and the sound all culminate together to create a heightened moment. That, that's my favorite part of theater where you can accentuate things. And then, you know, you, you come out of that moment and it goes back to a more neutral state. Those are my favorite moments in the theater. Oh, and you had a lot of them in small mouse sounds, I think, that, that as you said, you know, we had the classroom sort of setting. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly we're in, in three separate cabins and then suddenly we're in the middle of a forest by a lake. And that uh, uh, those shifts in, in uh, setting and tone, mm -hmm. I think, were really well um really well executed and that's sound and, and lighting. Mm -hmm. Do you guys, and we're coming down to the end of it here. I know it's been a, a little while and you've both done probably half dozen shows since small mouth sounds back in, in 2019. Do you, did you mark this one in the win column? Josh, you said you hate your design generally until opening night when you hate it all over again. Um, did you, did you come down on the wind column on this one where there's there? Uh, do you, do you recall? I did. I enjoy. I enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's just opening night is always one too many uh, for me to see the show. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's probably part because uh, at that point I don't change anything, right? Unless something goes terribly wrong, uh, and so I, I think some of that control being taken away from me makes me hate it even more. But um, <laughs> I this this show in particular and. Uh, Honestly, all the shows I've done with APF have been some of my most successful and artistically fulfilling shows that I've uh, ever done. And uh, unfortunately, because of this COVID thing, I haven't done a whole lot of shows uh, since 2019. But uh, here we are. Here we are. What about you, Arliss? Was it a was it a do you consider this one a success? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because of its uniqueness, you know, 
like in 20 years, it, it will still be one that I'll like to look back on because it was one of the unique ones. You know, it's, this mm-hmm. was the, 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 you know, maybe not literally, I don't know, but like the smallest sound design as opposed to like 39 <laughs> steps, which would be like maximum sound design, you know? So, sure. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, definitely a win. And then you also got to teach Eric how to play the recorder, so that is I, definitely. I was going to sneak that in there as my secret favorite <laughs> favorite aspect is the moment I'm here at my house thinking about things, and the, based on the way the direction was going with the teacher character, and the fact that I had this recorder and I held this recorder in my hand, and I looked at it, and based on my my personal uh, relationship to Eric, and I was like, I'm going to get Eric Amblad to play recorder on stage. <laughs> and he was like, it's like nothing can stop me. Like this is going to happen. Like I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to tell him he's going to do it, and he's going to smirk at me, and then he's going to do it well. You know, like and that's exactly what happened. And every time I would hear him play that thing, uh, it would just make me smile so big. You know, we talked to, we talked to him and Dina last week uh, or a couple weeks ago uh, about the show, and and he mentioned that specifically that, that was was one of his favorite moments <laughs> in the in the show was was having to play that recorder. So mission accomplished. It's a win. Yeah, yeah it's a win just because of that. I, yeah, win win all around. I gave him the recorder at the end of the show. I was like, like this is now yours. You know, like you. Oh, good, <laughs> good. Mm-hmm. He likes those little keepsakes. He he has a couple of those from past from past plays with us. So mm-hmm. excellent. Well, guys, thank you so much for doing this and, and uh, for, for joining us uh, today. Um, you've changed, I mean, really, you've changed some of the language I'm going to use going forward. I'm going to steal some of those lines, Arliss. I think some of the poetry you guys have used in the way you discuss design is, mm-hmm. is going to be really helpful for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So you cannot take what I would more willingly part with all. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And we get a Shakespeare quote yeah. at the end, too. Awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. awesome. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks, guys. And Josh, uh, move back to Las Vegas. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll think about it it's on the list And, and that's it for this episode of Behind the Buzz, a continuing conversation from a public fit theater company. This was episode six. And I want to thank again, Arliss Estes and Josh Rabluski for joining us today with their remembrances and, and stories about the creative process. And a special thank you this week to Adam Paul, the director of Behind the Buzz and creative head of Giant Leap Industries. We've had a, a challenging week here at a public fit international with some personal issues that prevented us from recording on our regular schedule. Adam has been flexible and adaptive and unendingly supportive as we uh, bounce back and return to production. So if you enjoy these conversations, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe. Uh, There's one more episode in this inaugural season. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for upcoming seasons, drop us an email at behindthebuzz at a publicfit.org. Is there there a particular show you'd like to hear discussed? Is there an element of production you've always been curious about? Is there a question you've always wanted to ask Anne-Marie? Well, here's your chance. Uh, Your suggestions and questions will help guide us as we continue to examine our work and look at how theater and the theatrical process inform and are informed by the world around us. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul, director. Bye.
production of Giant Leap Industries.